welcome to our podcast, Hoteliers Hot Topics with the IHG Owners Association. I'm Carly, I work for the association and myself and my colleague John are bringing you this series of podcasts aimed at all IHG hoteliers discussing hot topics in the market. We'll be bringing you key insights from our incredible guests who are all specialists across various markets and roles in the hospitality industry. These podcasts are not staged interviews by any stretch. We will be having genuine, honest, roundtable discussions together, sharing to you golden nuggets of information that you can hopefully take back to your hotels and businesses to assist your future success. We will be sharing visions, best practice and market insights on a variety of topics because as an association, we know that we're better together. So let's get started on today's podcast. This podcast will be released to you in two parts. In the session today, we are going to be talking all things environment and sustainability. Globally, this is one of the key hot topics right now, especially with the recent COP26 summit in Glasgow in November. To discuss the topic and educate you further on the areas of focus with the owners and with IHG, we have three guests joining us today as specialists in this remit. They will introduce themselves to you shortly. Your host today is our very own John Stewart from the Owners Association. So thank you all for your time. And Susan, over to you to start your introductions. Hi, I'm Susan Bland. I'm Managing Director for RBH Hospitality Management. I also am the new chair for the Global Sustainability Committee for IHG's Owners Association. So um, I'm there to support IHG in uh, achieving their journey to tomorrow goals around environmental work and, and sustainability. My name is Mariana Zebrat and I'm the Director of Global Decarbonisation at IHG. And I'm Louise Holder. Um, I am the Director for Global Environment at IHG. Thank you. So without further ado, let's kind of get into some of these topics that we, we want to cover today. I think, you know, certainly from my perspective, when you you hear a lot of the Paris Agreement, COP26, you know, what was it about? And maybe we can look into that and maybe bring some jargon busting to it from some of the phrases that we used. So, Mariana, one of the, the bits that would really help is just to give some background about how, how we got here in relation to sustainability. Great. So let's have a bit of a history lesson then. So since the Industrial Revolution, we've been emitting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere through the use of fossil fuels such as oil, coal and natural gas. Now, you might remember from uh, your geography lessons back at school that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas that absorbs heat and releases it gradually over time. Now, as the concentration of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere increases, our global temperatures also rise. And since 1850, we've seen a temperature increase of 1.1 degrees. Our understanding of the negative impacts of global warming have increased significantly over the last few decades. And this led to 196 countries coming together in Paris in 2015 to adopt the Paris Agreement which is a legally binding international treaty on climate change that aims to limit global warming to two degrees, but preferably one and a half degrees compared to pre-industrial levels. Now, following Paris, there was a landmark report that came out from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that showed that the impacts at two degrees are dramatically worse on our lives and on our economies than at one and a half degrees. So COP26 at Glasgow aimed to keep the ambition of one and a half degrees alive by getting countries to ramp up 
their carbon reduction commitments. Now, in terms of what this actually practically means, in order to keep global warming below one and a half degrees, we must halve our carbon emissions by 2030 and move to net zero by 2050. Thanks, Mariana. I think there was a, there was a few phrases that kind of uh, that you used within there that were really helpful to get some some further background on. So, one of them is carbon footprint. Louise, can you give us some background to that about how we how we measure it? Yeah, sure, of course. So, when we think about um, a hotel specifically and a hotel's carbon footprint, actually, carbon is emitted in every single activity that a hotel that sort of goes on in that hotel. That includes the energy that's used to power and to heat the hotel. Um, It also includes any commodity which is purchased in the hotel as well. So if you think about all of the food, linens, amenities, everything that um, a hotel um, would need to have um, to operate on a day-to-day basis, all of those things have um, carbon and energy associated with them. So when we look at a hotel's carbon footprint, we have to account for all of those different different things and different activities and we we break these emissions down into what we call scopes so without getting into too much uh, complicated detail when we look at a hotel's carbon footprint we have three scopes so scope one scope two and scope three scope one covers any energy which is actually combusted on site so for your hotel that would be any natural gas it would be your fossil fuels that you use on site as well Um, For scope two, that includes any um, energy that you use, which is combusted elsewhere. So that's your electricity. And then scope three um, will include absolutely everything else. So that's all of the activities that go on in the hotel's value chain. So all of those purchased goods and services, any sort of business travel, employee commuting, all of those different activities would fall into scope three. Thanks, Louise. I think there's a few points we'll hopefully pick up on later on in the the podcast about what owners can do to reduce that. I think on that point, there was another couple of phrases used that, that Susan, maybe you could cover. It was net zero and carbon offsetting. Yeah, sure. And those two do go hand in hand. So as Mariana said, we are guilty of putting carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And there is a lot of carbon already in our atmosphere. So one thing to note is that we can't actually stop global warming from happening immediately because because that's already there and is acting as a greenhouse and increasing our global temperature. And also because all of the processes globally and things that we have in place, are we can't just stop everything overnight. So we are going to continue to put more carbon into the atmosphere and therefore the temperature is going to rise. Net zero is all about managing that really. And it's about getting to a state where the greenhouse gases that and the carbon that is going into the atmosphere is balanced out by the removal of them and obviously uh, and, and therefore the amount of carbon in the atmosphere doesn't increase any further and therefore the global temperature doesn't increase any further. So that's what net zero means. As Louise mentioned, actually measuring how much carbon one building or one company or one household puts into the atmosphere is really complicated 
there are some big things that can quite easily be measured, like uh, how much electricity you use and how much fuel you use for your vehicles, etc. But but some of the things Louise talked about there as a business, you know, the goods that you purchase uh, or the goods that you produce and, and how much carbon is related to them going into the atmosphere is, is really difficult to, to quantify. Um, so it's not an easy solution to reach net zero. There's not a one size fits all. And it is trying to make small steps towards each of the parts is the only way that we're going to achieve it. It's also not something that we in the UK can achieve by ourselves. We need everybody on the planet. We need some of the big carbon producing countries like China, for instance, to really be at the table having the same uh, commitments in reducing the carbon that they produce and put into the atmosphere and also in the solutions for reducing that and then uh, offsetting, which we'll come to in a minute, any residual carbon. So I think that that's something that's really needs to be understood. And, and that's why there was such a big fuss about who was coming to COP26, which countries were coming, which heads of countries were coming, who was actually sitting up and taking notice, which countries were making the biggest commitments, etc. because we're all in it together and, and we all have to play our part. So if we as a an individual hotel or a group of hotels are to achieve net zero and to align to IHG's targets of, of reaching net zero across their full estate. Every single hotel in the portfolio and office in the portfolio and the franchise portfolio needs to have a plan to look at what carbon they are producing and then initially how they can massively manage that and reduce it. And only in thinking differently and, and really changing our habits are we going to be able to reduce the amount of carbon that we, we put out. Once that has been in place and we have the plans that put out that carbon reduction plans and, and they're all... Uh, being actioned across each of our hotels and, and portfolios, at that point, and only at that point, should we then be looking at offsetting. That is very much the final piece of the puzzle in any residual carbon can then be offset in a different way. And offsetting in this terminology means things that would, once you've reduced what you're putting in, uh, is there anything that you can do to then help remove carbon from the existing amount that's already in the atmosphere? Things that have been talked about from an offsetting perspective are, are creating carbon sinks, as they're being referred to. And a carbon sink could be a forest or it could be a peat um, a peat area or a, a moss area or anything that is kind of able to absorb carbon. And as we all know, uh, trees and, and plants are good at absorbing carbon from the atmosphere. What's been confusing, I think, over recent times is that the offsetting terminology 
has almost jumped ahead of the reduction plans in some people's understanding of what needs to be done. But actually, it very much has to be that last resort to get rid of the residual amounts rather than the starting point. If I use examples of when you book a flight, for instance, there's usually a little box you can tick to say, I'll pay an extra amount of money and that will offset the carbon that my flight is creating. Things like that, I'm not disputing that they they have a place, but they also allow people to literally tick a box, pay a couple of quid and not really think about actually changing their behaviours, which pretty much makes it somebody else's problem. I'm paying you to go and plant a tree somewhere else. So it, that, that says it's, I'm not going to do anything different. I'm expecting somebody else to deal with the carbon that I've produced. And so I think the, the understanding needs to be increased on the fact that, yes, that does have a place, but it's not the whole answer. It's a very small part of the answer. And really, every individual, every home, every business, every hotel has to focus on their plans for reduction of the carbon that they're putting out there um, as the first port of call. And that's uh, what IHG's Journey to Tomorrow and the Sustainability Committee, etc., and all the work that Mariana and Louise have been doing within their team. That's really the, the big area of focus. Thank you, Susan. That was a really comprehensive overview. I think it sounds like there might be, I mean, I've heard the phrase used a couple of times, you know, the virtue signaling around you know the, the sustainability piece. And it sounds like yourself and the IHG team are you know focusing on what actually physically makes a difference rather than making the carbon reduction someone else's problem to use your phrase maybe at that point if we go through to maybe ask louise i know that what have ihg currently committed to in line with you know what happened at cop 26 yeah sure so actually back in 2020 we had set a science-based target And a science-based target means that it's a carbon reduction target, which is aligned to the ambitions of the Paris Agreement. So like Mariana mentioned at the beginning of the the podcast, that the the commitments under the Paris Agreement are to keep temperature rise well below two degrees, ideally to 1.5. So that is what IHG set its science-based target to back in 2020. And that target was actually aligned to a two-degree pathway Actually, in the in the past couple of years, science has moved on. As Mariana mentioned, the IPCC um, released their sort of groundbreaking report, um, which told the world that you know two degrees is too warm. The impacts of two degrees are going to be too catastrophic, and therefore we really need to all strive to keep temperature rise to one point five degrees. And as a result of that, in the lead up to COP twenty six, we actually resubmitted our target to the science-based target initiative and had that approved and that target aligns our carbon reduction to a 1.5 degree pathway Um, and that target actually requires IHG to reduce emissions by 46% so just under half by 2030 and that is um, aligned to 
the amount of carbon reduction required to get to net zero by 2050. So although it isn't a true net zero target, it does put us on the pathway to meet net zero if we continued beyond 2030 the levels of decarbonisation um, that we'll achieve by 2030 to 2050 that would get us to net zero. So that is um, the target that IHG has committed to. It's extremely ambitious. It involves us working with our franchise hotels because that target isn't just for the hotels in w- which we own, manage and lease. That extends to our franchise estate as well. So it will involve a huge amount of collaboration um, and we'll talk later in the session about, you know, some of the ways that we're, we, uh, we're going to get there and some of the projects we're working on, um, but hugely ambitious. And we've seen, you know, our peers have also come out with hugely ambitious targets as well. So Accor and Marriott, they have set science-based targets um, and also committed to net zero. So it's something that um, us, our peers, and also other industries, there are over a thousand companies um, who have committed to science-based targets. Thanks, Louise. I mean, it sounds like you know, we are in it together in the, kind of the, the hospitality industry. I think that certainly from where I've started to do some, some reading into this subject and also the preparation for this call, there's been a number of things that have probably debunked some of my misconceptions. And, you know, Susan, maybe you might like to share some of the, the, the common misconceptions you hear when you talk to you know, in other industry leaders or IHG or other brands? Sure. The biggest misconception I hear about is, as Louise just said, that the science-based targets are on track to limit the global warming to 1.5 degrees C. And the misconception that I hear about is that really doesn't sound very much. Surely that can't be a problem for the world. Why do we care about 1.5 degree for us in the UK? Surely that'll just make us a bit more like Spain. And that lack of understanding and and that misconception is is really the, the biggest one that I hear about quite a lot. I think from helping people to try and understand that, as Mariana said at the beginning, the, the temperature, the global temperature has gone up 1.1 degree since 1850. And even just the generation between us, or the couple of generations between us and our grandparents, in our grandparents' days, it was very rare to hear about any kind of extreme weather events. Um, whereas here we are at 1.1 degrees increase. And over the past couple of years, it's all we've heard about. You know, we've heard so much about last year, the floods in Europe and in China, uh, the fires in North America, hurricanes destroying and tornadoes destroying Caribbean islands or coastal towns. And with all of that comes loss of life, loss of habitat for our uh, animals, etc. So uh, all of those examples and the frequency of them, that's all related to global warming and the impact that that then has on climate change. And if we go up another 1.5 degrees, more and more of those events are going to happen um, and they will become more severe. But if we manage to keep it within the 1.5 degrees, then 
remain manageable as it is today. And the challenge will be if we don't contain it by 2050 and it goes higher than that, then our climate around the world will just become more and more unstable and more and more of those catastrophic events will occur. Can I add to uh, Susan's point on that? So there's, there's another issue that happens at one and a half degrees, which is that we start triggering tipping points that take climate change out of our control. So for example, right now, temperatures have risen by 1.1 degrees, but that's an average, including the oceans, including our atmosphere. And if you look at specific countries, it's gone a lot higher. So for example, Siberia has increased by about six degrees. And what is what one of the issues with that is that the, the permafrost is starting to thaw. And under that permafrost, there's a huge amount of methane that's been stored for millions of years. Now, once that thaws and releases and it releases the methane into the atmosphere, it sort of it massively accelerates the kind of the global warming that's going on. And there's a whole series of these types of tipping points that that we're getting close to. And the belief is that sort of at, at that 1.5 degree point is where we'll start to really trigger them in a way that global warming as a whole becomes sort of goes out of our control. No, and that's a, a fabulous point. And I, I see people nodding their, their heads <laughs> in, in unison. I think, Louise, you were going to make a, a, a point there. So not on um, the 1.5 degree pathway, I, I just the, one of the, the most common misconceptions, um, and I think something that maybe people outside of the sustainability sector aren't necessarily aware of is the claims that that companies are making around some of these commitments. And I think there, there's be, beginning to be more transparency now around company sustainability claims, definitely more so than there used to be. But I think one of the biggest misconceptions is around, you know, the term carbon neutrality. And I think the fact that the Science-Based Targets Initiative has released their new net zero guidance for, for companies, which really sort of outlines what reduction you need to achieve and by when, and then what percentage of your emissions you can actually offset is something which is really going to be game-changing in terms of holding companies accountable because there's a standard in which you should be adhering to in order to make a claim around net zero. So um, whereas in the past, you could say, you know, your hotel or your company is carbon neutral because your energy continues to increase each year, but you're just offsetting more and more. Technically, you're carbon neutral, but in line with the new net zero guidance, you wouldn't be net zero. So I think that's something which I'm really pleased that has come out now. Um, that's very recent. And I think it will just hold companies much uh, more to account in the, the claims and the targets that they're setting and hopefully give a bit more transparency as well uh, for the sort of day-to-day -day consumer who, you know, who doesn't have time to, to read or to learn about what all of these different terms means. They just, they, you know, as we do, we take things on face value when we see things on advertisements or, you know, on a, on a company's website. No, and I think kind of Susan alluded to that and I did as well a wee bit just with the virtue signaling. It's almost like a, a marketing piece at the moment. Mariana, you've got something to add there as well. Well, it was, it's related to another misconception, which is that one thing I often hear is, you know, there's no point in us doing anything until China moves. And there's there's a feeling that, that you know, China's not doing enough. And so China's a tricky, <laughs> tricky one, because actually, if you look at what they're doing in terms of renewables, they've invested more in renewables than the whole of Europe or the US. And they are behind why, you know, things like solar panels have become now so 
financially attractive because, you know, the powerhouse that is China has basically driven down the cost to a point that that we can financially use sort of solar panels and that, you know, the economics are, are really that attractive. And the other thing with, with China is they're in, a, they're in a slightly tricky situation. So whereas, you know, the UK and the US can move out of coal, coal by moving into gas and then eventually moving into renewables, China doesn't have that luxury because they don't have huge resources of natural gas. So they've got to go straight from coal to renewables, which is, again, makes it a, a much harder challenge. And then finally, we've been all fantastic at exporting all of our manufacturing to China. So their carbon emissions per person, because because carbon is measured at the point it's produced and not at the point it's consumed, all of the stuff we buy counts in in China's carbon basket. So, you know, if I buy a whole bunch of, you know, plastic toys to give away to my, to my daughter's friends after her, her birthday party, those will all have been manufactured in China and all the carbon from those toys will count towards their, their carbon emissions. So it just makes it a much harder thing for them to reduce. And despite that, their carbon emissions per person are less than half of, of the US, Canada, Australia. So I just think there's, there's a lot of misconceptions around China. I think they, they are doing a lot. They've got some sort of ambitious targets. And I think all of us need to be moving forward rather than sort of trying to shift the, the blame between countries. Yeah, and I think just the transparency piece that you talked about, Marianne and Susan and Louise, you all mentioned the same points. That once we, we kind of debunk some of these myths, then we can move forward. Um, but I think some of that is going to be taken out of our hands through whether it be legislation or the public and the choices that the public want to make. We're going to close part one of this podcast here today and we will be releasing the second part to you next week. In next week's podcast, we're going to cover how all the information we have given you today will impact the hotels. We really hope that you found today thought-provoking and useful to you. If you did, we would love for you to share this content with others that you think will find it useful too. You can leave us a rating and feedback or subscribe to hear the next episode, which will be coming your way very soon. Finally, if you are an IHG franchisee, you can head over to owners.org for more information or log into our member centre where you will find supporting information and additional tools and resources to help support your businesses. Thanks again from your host, John, and myself, Carly, and we look forward to seeing you next time.